Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This summer has been one of the hottest for the entire world, with temperatures rising above 100 degrees Fahrenheit quite frequently. Here in the United States, there are many places where the heat has gone well above 100 degrees. And at Death Valley National Park, the temperature this past week attracted crowds hoping to see it reach 130 degrees. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. In the national park system, there are places where summertime heat is routine, something the rangers have become accustomed to and know how to deal with, and something that not all park visitors know how to cope with. To get a sense for conditions this past week in two of the hottest places in the park system, we've reached out to rangers at Grand Canyon National Park and Death Valley National Park. We'll be back in a minute with Megan Smith, the Preventive Search and Rescue Coordinator at Grand Canyon National Park. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at Yosemite.org. So welcome to The Traveler, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. So it's been a hot time down at Grand Canyon National Park, and, and you've got, I guess, three different elevations that you, you focus on weather-wise, the South Rim, the North Rim, and the Inner Gorge. That's correct. Yeah, there's a wide span in both geography, topography, and climate. There really is. Um, it, it's just amazing. I'm, I'm trying to remember from the South Rim down to the floor of the, the canyon along the Colorado River. Yeah, so the easiest way to think about it is we're, we're near 7,000 feet on the North Rim, excuse me, on the South Rim. Uh, we're near 9,000 feet on the North Rim, and our climate, heat, uh, and elevation is very similar to that of Phoenix at the bottom of the canyon. And, and what's the elevation there at the bottom of the canyon? Approximately 2,400 feet. Wow, big, big difference. I know that one of the reasons it gets so hot down there on the, the floor of the canyon is it's like you, you're entering a convection oven almost, right? That's correct. Yep. The the radiation off that, that particular kind of rock and the lack of of space for air to circulate well and then the the elevation as well. So all those many things factor into retaining that heat down there at the bottom of the canyon. Now, this past week, it's been pretty pretty hot um, here in the southwest, pretty hot at Grand Canyon. I mean, in general, your your temperatures there at Phantom Ranch on the, the canyon floor in July, um, I think it's around 120 degrees, tops maybe? Yeah, yeah, tops. And that, you know, our averages, I would speculate, or what I'm remembering is 105 to 110 degrees shade temperatures. So yes, you're accurate in that out in the sun, it's very easily 120 and upward. And what have you seen this past week? Uh, well, we're seeing 117, 118 degree shade temperatures, putting our sun temperatures much higher than that. And then 
you know, there's the factor of humidity. Now, our percentages in humidity have been quite low this week, but typically July is when the rains come and cool things off, and that hasn't happened yet. Right, right. I, I was going to say, um, you know, I'm from originally from the East Coast where there's lots of humidity, and, and out in the West they say, yeah, it's 110 degrees, but it's a dry heat. I right. mean, that, that really doesn't play well, does it? No, it doesn't, and we still get humidity here. And one of the things that they're finding in science is that humidity plays a much larger role in how humans acclimate and live in the hot climate than scientists really understand. And they're they're trying to do more research in that area, but all the while we're having these effects on the body. And I can tell you the dry heat is actually favorable. Um, once it becomes humid here and the temperatures stay increased, we're in very hazardous um, scenarios and we don't pay close enough attention to that. I'm sorry, when, when the temperature goes up and, and you have the humidity with it, it's more dangerous? Yes. Yep. That's correct. Why is that? Well, I don't know all the pathophysiologies involved and I can tell you about heat acclimatization in the arid climate, how we develop heat shock proteins and our body, our body's ability to dissipate or sweat smarter over time but something is is changing in that humid climate and it's not allowing that evaporative cooling to take place and that is where i understand it to become more significant and more dangerous right right now i'm i'm guessing that many of our listeners if not most of our listeners have heard the term search and rescue um tied to the national parks i'm not so sure they're familiar with preventive search and rescue what exactly is that and what is your role as coordinator of Grand Canyon's preventive search and rescue team? Yeah, that's a great question, Kurt. So our program began in the late 90s. We'd had a significant year, about five heat-related deaths on the trail and over 300 search and rescues. And that was not sustainable or tenable for the staff. So they had a loosely woven volunteer program back then, and they started to formalize it. It's grown into the program that it is today. It has over 80 volunteers, nine seasonal employees on the North Rim is one, two in the Inner Canyon, and the rest are on the South Rim with me. I am the one permanent employee of the program. All of us are trained in the same ways. We're out on the trail providing hiker education, generally in the morning, information, trying to make sure people are prepared, safe have good information and good itineraries. And then we're out in the afternoons as well to help people with plan B when things don't go as planned. Right, right. Now I'm curious, um, does the program work? I mean, do people seem to be following the park suggestions for hiking in the summer in these high temperatures? I mean, you go to the your, the park website today, you know, and it talks about uh, extreme heat advisory, high temperatures in the inner canyon of 118 degrees, Please don't hike into the canyon during the midday heat between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. And then, of course, you know, bring water and snacks and sunscreen and wide-brimmed hats. Are, are visitors to the park following those suggestions? Yeah. So it depends. And you can go out on a patrol, and some days you can feel like your visitors and everyone you interacted with is very well prepared and and things are in good shape out there. And then other days you can go out and feel like, oh my gosh, no one's listening. No one's read the signage. No one's paying attention. And this is really dire straits. But the reality is, is that uh, it takes a, a culture it, in building a culture here at Grand Canyon. So whether it's a cashier that's interfacing with visiting public, uh, that's not a National Park Service employee, to the ranger staff, to the volunteers, uh, to the compost workers that are out there on the trail going to and from their jobs. If I've done it right, we have provided in-house training to all those different groups, and they're all providing the same messaging. We also coordinate with, with NOAA, uh, the Weather Service, and we're giving good information that's consistent and, and across-the-board uniform. So to your original answer, if PSAR works, well, measuring things that we can't see or measuring things that we hope to prevent is really difficult in data and statistics. But I can tell you that our 10-year average, excluding 2020 as an outlier because of COVID and the park sure. being closed for a number of months, sure. we've recently run some data and about 5 million visitors is our, our park average for that 10-year. 
and we're hovering around 300 to 350 SARS, and our numbers are still one to two heat-related deaths per year. So if we look at the way that visitation has climbed from the late 90s till now, and we look at the, the more level across the board, we have some outliers of our number of SAR incidences, and we look at that even smaller segment of people that are dying from heat illness, we can say with good confidence that PSAR does work. Well, that's great to hear. Now, when you're talking about high temperatures and, and illnesses or injuries that can spur from those temperatures. I mean, I, I guess the, the main heat-related injuries can range from um, heat cramps um, all the way up to, to heat stroke. Do you, see, do you see a lot of those? Um, we see a lot of people um, ailing and failing in the hot environment. And, and it is a range, as you've said. It's on a spectrum, right? So one of the things we try and teach and educate our visitors and our staff about is that if someone is, has altered mentation, a mood change, unresponsiveness of any level, there's a change in the brain that is a significant life threat and needs to be taken seriously. We need to seek medical care and intervention for that person right away. But all the way down to mild heat rash, general discomfort, uh, a mild bit of nausea, there's a whole gamut of things that we can experience in the hot environment. So. It depends on what you read, different classifications, uh, different information will say a core body temperature of 103.1 or, or another you know, thing will, will say 104. We really don't care what the core body temperature is. We care what the function of the brain is doing. If people are functioning well and caring for themselves in the hot environment appropriately, they won't be suffering from those concerning ailments, signs, or symptoms. Yeah. Now, earlier this summer, I think it was back in June, um, there was a, a fatality um, in the park in a remote area. Did they ever come up to a conclusion? Um, was that heat exhaustion, heat stroke that led to that death? Uh, both the cases we've had in the park, we had one uh, about a week ago, uh, is speculated to be heat related and one back in June, you're correct. But those are both still under investigation. It will be some time before the park releases uh, their final report on that. Now, when you guys, when the rangers go out in the park, when the LEs are out in the park, you guys are wearing a lot of gear, especially the LEs. They've got their flak vests on, I guess, and you know all, all the equipment that they have to carry. How do they endure these temperatures? That's a good question. So it's a lot of self-monitoring and a lot of self-care. We're also talking to our staff about maintaining our heat shock proteins and keeping in body condition Good baseline fitness is really imperative, but then on top of that, there's other things that they can do to help their bodies sweat smarter. When you're out in that in that climate, we're shading up. We are not we're not going with our shirts off as if we were at the beach or you know <laughs> down to bikinis. Grand Canyon is not a place to get a suntan and improve uh, what you might uh, consider to look good for skin condition. It's all about shading up, right? So we're we're taking sun protection really seriously. We're wearing cotton in the summer months. It's often said that cotton kills when in the austere environments, but here we want to wear cotton and soak it down. So it's not just a little dribble of water or a neck towel. We're getting fully wet. So if you have a hose available, you're hosing yourself down. If there's a creek, you're laying in it. You're getting fully soaked and wet so that that cotton absorbs as much moisture as possible and does the evaporative cooling for your body. Our skin is a big organ, and it works really hard to keep us cool. But if we have to uh, give it an alternative and let it let it get a break, that's really the way to go. That's interesting. You know, some years ago, I was at uh, Cape Lookout National Seashore in the summertime, and I, and I ran across some LEs, uh, law enforcement rangers, and I was just amazed at how they could, you know, wear all that gear and endure the heat and the humidity, and. Um, you know, you go out to the Grand Canyon and you may not have that humidity, but you've got that heat and you've got those elevations that you guys have to work in on a daily basis. I mean, that's no easy task. Yeah, it, it is a challenge. I'm really fortunate that I'm not a commissioned officer, so I do have a lighter load. I do carry supplemental medical gear, you know, in place of that. But but we still have, unfortunately, crime occurring against the resource and against other humans in the national parks. And that's why we have law enforcement presence in all areas of the park. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of some of those 
heat-related illnesses. Are there time frames, critical time frames, uh, especially when you get to heat exhaustion and heat stroke, that aid has to be rendered in some form or fashion? Absolutely. And that's why I took so much time earlier in our conversation to discuss and stress the importance of mentation. So it's hard and and it can be group dynamic dependent, right? I know if I was out uh, hiking with particular individuals, depending on that dynamic, it would be hard for me to speak up and say, hey, you know, you're not acting right or you're being a little bit more grumpy than normal. I'm concerned about you. And then getting that person to listen parent-child relationships, spousal relationships, boyfriend-girlfriend partnerships. There's so much at play when we go on vacation, when we're up against challenges in the austere environment. And so getting yourself and your group to recognize very astutely that there's something going on here. And then, as you said, taking quick action. It's taking the water that you have available and cooling that person down. Now, when we teach in survival circumstances to either drink your water or pour it on your on your body. What do you do? Well, the first thing you have to do is stop metabolic demand and wait for cooler shade temperatures. So stopping is critical. Then the other piece is deciding what to do with the little water you may have. It's always of far greater value to drink the water that you have rather than pour it on your body. Now, if you're in a circumstance where you have a two-way communication device and you know help is coming, you've gone and sent someone in your party or a couple somebody's in your party ahead for help and they're going to get water, then it's our recommendation absolutely to dispense all the water you have on the core of that person, strip them down out of all constrictive uh, barriers and clothing and get them wet and then start to fan their body. There's a creek just protect their their mouths, mouth and nose and their airway, keep their head out of the water. You want to cool them down as soon as possible. Now, I know in, in recent years, um, a lot more parks have been putting um, water filling stations um, in, in various areas. And I know you've got, um, at least on the, um, the Bright Angel Trail, I believe, there's a cra- campground partway down that has water resources. What, what about the South Kaibab Trail? Is there a, a water filling station at the top, or do people have to fill up in the village before they head over there? Yeah, so we maintain a water filling station at the South Kaibab Trailhead. And water, you know, water is such a scarce and key resource. Whether it's plentiful and, and has con- contamination concerns across our country, across the globe, water should be treated in high regard. We should know where it's available at all times and carry water treatment supplies if there's any question about the portability or cleanliness of the water. And that's on us to know before we go what we should be prepared with and faced with. Here at Grand Canyon, our our water pipeline has outlived its usable life, and there's a big project in place for its replacement in the coming many years. It's just begun underway, but we won't see an actual replacement of that line for some time to come. So we're preparing for that. In addition to the the Bright Bright Angel Trail having water stations at the trailhead, mile and a half and three mile, those are predicted to be replaced this coming fall. Uh, Havasupai Campground is what you're referring to, Phantom Ranch, and then uh, on the north side, the corridor. So Cottonwood Campground, Manzanita, and so on. South Kaibab has a potable water filling station that we've just placed in there with the helicopter, actually. Um, We had to bring in a different aircraft that was a heavy lift aircraft uh, to prepare us for shifting visitor traffic off the Bright Angel as that needs to be shut down in stages so that there's actual water available for emergency use in other locations. So it's approximately... Uh, two and a half miles to three miles down the trail by O'Neill Butte. And mm-hmm. all of our staff are trained on on accessing that. So water, yes, very valuable resource. Know before you go where, be prepared for it to change. We could have a pipeline break at any moment here. So moment to moment. I know um, it's a long hike down. And I know the, the park recommends you do not try and go from rim to canyon floor and, and back up in the same day. Back in the last century, when I was a younger guy, I actually did it one June morning with a friend of mine. Um, we stopped at Phantom Ranch and enjoyed the cool air and the lemonade and um, the shade before we went back up. And of course, you know, we're very conscious about how much water we carried. Um, I'm guessing Grand Canyon National Park, like many national parks, gets a lot of people who 
maybe are not so familiar with backcountry travel or, or hiking even, do you, do you find um, a lot are not carrying as much water as they should? And, and what's their response when you suggest them to, to get more or to cut short their hike? It's so difficult, right? Because as a visitor, uh, we come with a plan and we get really married to and augured in, particularly here in our upside down geography at Grand Canyon. And we really just want to stick to our itinerary. So when you assess people, what they have, water and, and equally as important food. I find oftentimes that people are carrying sufficient water and they don't have any food or they only have a cliff bar or something along those lines. And that's not ample calorie and salt intake to get you out of this place. Mm. So yeah, there there's packing and planning and preparedness issues across the board. It's hard to get people to convince to change their mind, especially when they're on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. There's that saying that sometimes when they go on vacation, they put their brains on vacation. So do you get a bunch of pushback? Do you, do you finally just walk away? I mean, what, what's the, the protocol for dealing with that type of situation where somebody might be endangering their life because they're stubborn? Yeah, so it is a great question, and I get that all the time from our volunteers, the 80 volunteers that, that come and work here. There can be a lot of pressure, self-implied pressure, or, or sense of urgency, or duty to respond from our providers. And as long as they are adults of sound mind and uh, have been given the, the good advice, not just to be cautionary on how much water or food they do or don't have, but what to do if they get into trouble, we give that information as well. And then they're public land and they're free to explore and, and go forth and have their own experiences. <laughs> I was an educator at one point in my career and experiential learning and the the things that mother nature teaches is far better and far greater and will stick with them longer than any of my nagging or that of our staff. So as long as there's not um, minors involved or animals involved, we tend to be uh, friendly advisors and then we step back and let them go have their own experience. When it comes to children and pets, they don't get a say in the family planning of the vacation. And so we are an extra set of eyes and ears and defendants of those patrons and visitors. Yeah, yeah. But I bet you it doesn't always work. Do you find that as the temperatures get hotter for some reason, more people come to the park to be able to say that I was at Grand Canyon, what was 125 degrees? You know, that's a great question. And I, it made me ponder because that's one I haven't gotten in an interview <laughs> before, but it's also one that I don't get on the trail. Um, people are not out, generally speaking, in the masses. They're here because, you know, this is the time of year that their job allowed them to be away. Uh, this is the time of year that they could afford a plane ticket to come from another country. This is the time of year that their bucket list thing was available. Maybe it was a river trip and now they're hiking out on an exchange from the bottom of the canyon. So it's really just what they can afford financially and in time that puts them here during these months. Yeah, yeah. Last question. Have you ever seen anyone try and fry an egg in the sunshine? <laughs> uh, I've heard, but I have not tried it. Uh, here at Grand Canyon, but one of the tests that uh, a fellow SAR um, peer informed me about was to take one of the thermal thermometers and, uh, and do a makeshift shelter and dig out some ground space, measure a before and after reading and, and see firsthand uh, what the difference shade makes and just scraping away some of that earth. So if you're sitting or lying on that ground surface, it can make your condition worse. So seeking shade is really important. And I have seen that example played out. Yeah. What's this scraping the dirt away for? So it just, it takes that top layer that's so hot and radiative of, of all that the heat that is consumed and gets to a deeper layer of earth that may be cooler. Okay. So if you have to seek shelter out away from someplace, that's one way to do it is erect some sort of shade device and, and scrape the dirt away to create a, at least a shorter or a smaller hollow in the earth. Absolutely. And get wet if you can. That's Megan Smith, the preventive SAR coordinator at Grand Canyon National Park. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today and um, stay cool out there. Thanks, Kurt. You have a great day. 
listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Patero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Okay, from the Grand Canyon, we're going head west over to Death Valley National Park to check in with Nicole Andler, the park's chief of interpretation and education. Welcome to The Traveler, Nicole. Thank you for having me. So this past week, it's um, probably not the hottest you've ever experienced, but it's certainly one of the hottest weeks in Death Valley in, in recent years, no? Yeah, it is the, the hottest week we, we've had in a little while. It is getting warmer in Death Valley. Seven out of the 10 hottest summers have been in the last 10 years. So we are seeing a warming wow. trend. Wow. Wow. What makes it so hot there? I mean, it's, it's, it's wide open. You would think you'd get plenty of breezes coming through. Yeah, well, our low elevation combined with our valley being ringed by mountains, um, as the air starts to rise, it can only get so far. And then instead of cooling and sinking, the hot air just gets trapped. And so it keeps continuing to heat, which leads to our warmer temperatures. That's interesting because, you know, in your home, you always hear that, you know, heat tends to rise and... uh at Death Valley, it can only rise so far um, because of the, the surrounding mountains? Correct, yeah. That's interesting. Now, when we're talking hot, um, the hottest temperature in the world, I believe, was recorded at Death Valley back in uh, July of 1913, so, you know, 110 years ago. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, July 10th of 1913 is still the record uh, at 134.1 Fahrenheit, 56.7 Celsius. But more recently, um, we have in August of 2020 and July of 2021 reached 130 degrees, which this uh, heat spell that we're going through right now, we thought that maybe um, with predicted highs of 128, 129 that we could have seen another 130. Um, it was still predicted to not quite reach it, but we were we were aware, and I think the public is aware, that that was something that wouldn't be a surprise if it happened. Yeah. Now, going back to July of 1913, um, I guess the temperature was taken by Oscar Denton, who at the time was a caretaker of the Greenland Ranch, with which today is uh, the Furnace Creek Ranch. And... Um, I think he went outside and, and said it was so hot that birds were falling dead from the sky. Um, a little hyperbole there, I imagine. 
Yes, yes, I think so. Um, I have not heard uh, that that anecdotal little tale there about birds in the heat, but there there have been uh, things that we do notice um, in the heat, especially like us as the folks who who live here and work here, and and we see it with the visitors as well, where. Uh, it's kind of like the extreme cold. I've, I've lived in places where it gets extremely cold and you feel the pins and needles uh, on your skin. Well, here at Death Valley in the extreme heat, I feel like I can actually feel the sun touching me. It, it gets very hot and your skin feels very hot. Um, so a little different from those pins and needles, but you you can you can feel it. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, um, I, I've been to Death Valley a number of times and I remember once... Um, I got up at 6 a.m. and it was already 100 degrees. Um, definitely caught my attention. Is there a huge difference between, say, 100 degrees and 110 and 110 degrees and 120? I mean, do you, do you actually notice, like, boy, it's not 110 anymore? <laughs> well, it, it actually... Uh, is different for different people because uh, before before Sunday, some of us were actually talking and one person said, oh, I don't really feel it until it's 120, 121. And somebody else said, once it hits 112, that's it for me, then it's it's really hot and, you know, I hibernate. So it, it kind of varies. Everybody has sort of their little tipping points. This is my first summer here. And so I am kind of discovering uh, mine, which at least right now, spending minimal amounts of time is definitely uh, 121. <laughs> I'm in agreement there, uh, where I'm like, huh, I do want to get where I'm going as quickly as possible. <laughs> where were you previously? Oh, uh, right before this, I was at Great Basin National Park. Oh, well, that's not too bad. I mean, the summers aren't quite as hot, but still. No. It's not like you're at Denali and coming down to Death Valley. No, no. <laughs> Now, um, going back again to that um, 1913 record, um, I guess the, the Park Service noted at the time that the, the heat wave actually had five consecutive days where the temperature reached 129 degrees Fahrenheit or above. I mean, we're talking hot. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it was. It was it, learning and reading about that heat spell and noticing how many days in a row, uh, because July 13th, of 1913, it was 131. July 12th of 1913, it was 130. So those are in the top four hottest days on the planet, you know, including the 134 uh, on July 10th. So yeah, those that had to be um, an interesting time to be in Death Valley because <laughs> I don't think air conditioning was around at that point. I'm very grateful for air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, actually, Scotty's Castle, um, Albert Johnson, I think the the man, he kind of uh, invented his own air conditioning with um, um, water and um, I'm trying to think was it was he hanging sheets that the water would go through and and cool rooms. It's been a while since I researched that. Yeah, I think they had had their own like interesting versions of of what we would now call like swamp coolers. I think they had right. like a little indoor waterfall tumbling over rocks for the evaporative cooling. And I think you're right about the 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 wet fabric to again get the air moving through and uh, to cool down the air with evaporative cooling. Yeah, cer certainly not in everybody's house in house in Death Valley back then, you know. But I, I'm I'm just amazed at that 1913 the the five consecutive days. I looked back for this week. And, um, you know, you went from, uh, I guess, a high of, of 128 degrees on Sunday um, when everybody was rooting for the record to, or at least for 130 degrees. Um, and, and it had cooled all the way down to 121 degrees on, on Thursday, um, the 18th, or Tuesday, or Wednesday, the 18th. Do you look at it that way? It cooled down to 118 degrees? <laughs> um, so... Yes, we actually do say stuff like that where it, it is cooling down. It is getting a little cooler. Um, it is still very hot. Uh, we still need to take all of our precautions. And you know, we have work safety standards where when it's above 120 degrees, uh, all outdoor work stops unless there's an emergency. And even with that, we, we follow protocol where each hour you work 10 minutes and then you rest for 50 uh, just to make sure everybody stays safe. Rest for 50, 5-0. Five, 5-0, five, yes. 
wow, I'd like a job like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know it does sound like we're not getting um, a lot done, but you don't want to continually warm your body uh, too much because that can lead to heat stroke illness and uh, illness, heat stroke, and then um, hopefully not worse. Right, right. Now, what about visitation? Do you, do you find that visitation bumps up when when it gets really hot there? People want to say, yeah, I was in Death Valley when it was 125 or 130. Yeah, you know, uh, July and August have seen a new trend over the last several years where we're getting over 100,000 people each month there. So wow. we're seeing uh, a lot of folks from Europe and Asia coming to experience the extreme temperatures when it's whether it's a record or not a record, because it's something that most of them just don't ever experience where they live. Uh, but then, yes, like this past weekend, when we were predicted to get to 128, 129, and uh, I think some folks were watching to see if we would hit 130, it was it was busy. There were people coming out to be here just in case it did hit that 130. Amazing, amazing. Now, when I was there, I think it was back in 1998, and um, it was June. And um, it seemed to me that a lot of the visitors, as, as you mentioned, were, were Europeans or were Asians, that there weren't too many Americans there. I'm, I'm curious about that. Are there Americans coming out when it's this hot or do they just, you know, avoid it? Yeah, when it, when it gets this hot, because there's the chance to be here when it is at its hottest, we do see folks uh, regionally coming in to to visit and be here for that hottest temperature. And even some folks will come in from further away. But yeah, those really high temperatures and the chance to be here for a record-breaking day does attract some folks. Yeah, very interesting. Now, of course, there's plenty of places in Death Valley to experience that high heat. You can go down to Badwater, 282 feet below sea level, and really bake yourself. Or, or you can go out into some of the sand dunes. Um, do do visitors pay attention to the heat warnings? I mean, you've got heat warnings on your on your website. I'm sure there's heat warnings posted in the visitor center. The rangers are out there um, urging people to be safe. What's the public doing? So yes, we do. We we try to get a lot of messaging out there about how to stay safe. Folks do want to be outside and active, so we do strongly encourage them to be active before 10 a.m. We are still seeing folks, they'll, they'll do some of the shorter walks, like from the parking lot up to Zabriskie Point uh, during the day. They may even feel like they've got the ability to go hiking in the middle of the day. And I think not everyone, but a lot of folks will go and they will start on some kind of adventure and realize that it is, it's a lot more than they were expecting. And so they will return uh, to their vehicle, but that's not always the case. You had a, an unfortunate incident uh, a week or so ago where... A gentleman passed away. I guess he was driving down the road and his car went off the road 30 yards or something. Maybe it was 30 feet. And when the rangers got there, I think he'd already passed away, but they concluded that his air conditioner was broken. I think it was 126 degrees that day. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we did, we had a a warm spell uh, back in early July and it was. It is assumed. It has not been confirmed, but it's assumed that um, he most likely passed due to heat-related injury. And yes, his vehicle did not have working air conditioning. So that, that's. It really. It really sends a strong message that it's so hot out there that even if you're not walking in the direct sunlight, that the heat can get to you. Yes, heat. Heat is serious. Uh, I think that you know. There have been probably movies and different things where the cold gets highlighted with, you know, oh, your fingers and your, or your toes and they turn black from frostbite, which is very dramatic and you very easy to share through different forms of media. But heat illness, um, you know, I turn red when I exercise, you know, at 40 degrees. Um, but, you know, so when it gets really warm, um, I, of course, uh, turn red again. And so I think sometimes people think, oh, it's just hot. I will drink more water or I'll stand in the shade for a few seconds. But that warm air that is all around you is uh, taking moisture from your body, drying out the sweat that is trying to cool you. Um, so, yeah, 
take take it seriously and make sure that you have air conditioning, whether it's in your vehicle or that you're near a building that you can retreat to uh, to cool down again. Because yeah. once you get warm, it does take a long time to get cold, cooled again. Yeah, I know some some national parks have um, preventive search and rescue programs where um, rangers are out patrolling, watching for visitors to make sure that they appreciate the conditions. Does Death Valley have a, a program like that? Um, our preventive program uh, is largely our communications campaign, um, making sure that we put our alerts up and take them down on our website so that people know if we're expecting some really high temperatures, um, talking with folks at the visitor centers, and then uh I haven't worked at all the national parks, but I've worked at several. And this is the one place where I've seen, you know, when you enter the park at road intersections, at trailheads, where we've got the extreme heat danger signs up that uh, talk about uh, the fact that, you know, being out in this heat for very long is detrimental to your health. And when, when you have these forecasts of, you know, upper 120s, maybe 130, do you have more resources out in the field to to watch for visitors? So I know that like our, our park interpretation and education team, we actually have a smaller team during the summer than uh, during the, the busier visitor season. And um, our protection staff, I think that we have the same uh, number of rangers year round. And so they are out patrolling as they would be. And, um, one of the things that we try to emphasize with visitors is when you're coming to Death Valley, it's 3.4 million acres. So we can't be everywhere. So you need to be aware of how you are feeling. Um, you should be aware of how the members of your, your party are doing. Does anybody feel dizzy or nauseous? Uh, those could be early signs of heat stress. So get some place to cool down. And, you know, if, if you need to ask someone else to get some help, and we will respond if we see that you're visibly in distress. We will respond. Yeah, and you know one of the one of the challenges of Death Valley, if you're out in the park, there's not a lot of trees you can find shade under. Yeah, so that's a good reason to again uh, conduct your outdoor activities before 10 a.m. So the obvious bit is the temperature is lower in first thing in the morning, but also. Uh, the sun coming up and over the mountains before it gets directly overhead, you do get some shadow in places where you might be able to take shade um, with a rock or your vehicle or in a larger vehicle that you might be parked next to. Or sometimes the canyons themselves will block out the sun to provide, you know, even small areas of shade. Yeah. yeah. Um, over at the, the dune systems, um, are, are there any sun shelters set up? No, there are no sun shelters at the dunes. And again, the dunes would be a place where we would very much recommend be out there before 10 a.m. And uh, then that area might be good for a quick stop and a photograph and then back in your car. Or um, I don't know if the rangers still do this, but didn't they used to do nighttime hikes out into the dunes after sundown? Um, yes, we still do that, but we do reserve that for like the spring uh, because even now, after sunset, the temperatures are still can still be in the one tens, one twenties, and at midnight it can still be over a hundred degrees. And so, it's not necessarily still great temperatures for exerting yourself even at night. That's amazing. It's uh, truly hot, but, but but it's a dry heat. No, I mean, is it is it does it really matter when uh, you get above a hundred degrees, whether it's a dry heat or a wet heat? <laughs> well, um, I think uh, with it being a dry heat, it does feel different. And uh, so how how it impacts you might be different. I know that personally, I think that, you know, a hot, humid day is, is an extremely difficult day to get through. A dry day, I feel like I can handle and manage much better with with mm. the right protections like the air conditioning um but you know above a certain temperature it doesn't matter hot is hot whether it's dry or it's humid and you need to take care and protect yourself and i guess um this past uh, last weekend when it hit 128 degrees 
the the park doesn't shut down when it gets really, really, really hot. At least it hasn't yet. It hasn't yet. Um, We have not had a need yet to identify a temperature at which the park would have to shut down. And so we, we don't we don't have that. We have closed the park because of other because of disasters like the flood sure. uh, last year. Um, but otherwise, our primary goal is to communicate, help people have a safe visit, and to enjoy their national parks. Yeah, yeah. Now during the, these hot periods, um, do you have any idea how many um, responses rangers make on a daily basis to, to heat related incidents? I don't know what their daily total is, um, but this time of year, there usually are multiple per week. Yeah, yeah. And are, are they very serious? I mean, do you get up to heat exhaustion or is it mainly heat cramps, maybe heat stroke? Yeah, it does. It, it covers the entire spectrum um, to where, as, as you know, people have passed away uh, due to their heat stress. And in some cases where we have responded and called in other responders because someone was going to need to spend some time in a medical facility to get rehydrated, to, to be uh, cooled and to recover. Yeah, wow. Now, I know there at the Visitor Center at Furnace Creek, you've got that big, wonderful digital thermometer out front. That's a, probably a, a, a big photo um, op for a lot of people who come to the park. <laughs> yes, the thermometer out in front of the Furnace Creek Visitor Center is a great photo op uh, that, that people take advantage of. Um, we do share with everyone that uh, that thermometer runs a little hot and that is because of the conditions here in Death Valley. Um, one of the things that makes Death Valley feel hot and how and why the air stays so hot here is there's reflective heating from the ground. And so that thermometer is in a metal box, so that gets warm, but also it's on a concrete pad that is light in color. So that reflects heat back. So it usually runs three to five degrees warm. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, we won't tell anybody that. Uh- <laughs> I'm curious, though. I seem to recall in in years gone past, images of people trying to fry an egg on the sidewalk or or somewhere in Death Valley in the the sun. Um, Is that still a thing? I have not seen any of that yet this year. And uh, it is something that we try not to um, make too big of a deal out of. Uh, because for one thing, uh, people get very excited about conducting that activity, and then they're not necessarily paying attention to uh, their surroundings. And so, you know, we've had people trip and fall over curbs um, because they're they're not uh, paying attention. Um, and then it's really hard to clean that stuff up after, or they don't clean up behind themselves, and so it attracts uh, wildlife to the roads, sure. which we don't want. No, no. Um, I have a friend down in in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, she sent me a um, uh, a picture of um, the thermometer in her her vehicle, and it read 109 degrees. And so I I had to ask her if she tried frying an egg on the hood of her car. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think so, but um, 109 seems kind of cool when you're talking 125, 120, 130 degrees. <laughs> um, 109 is it. That is still very warm, um, you know, and and certainly uh, not something that I think that we are all used to dealing with day to day. So the, these extended warm spells also are 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 something that you know it's one thing if it happens for to be a really hot day. It's another thing if you're having to daily uh, continue to um, take care of yourself, especially when you're not used to these warm temperatures. And I'm I'm wondering, is, is July the hottest month in Death Valley, or, or will it get hotter in August? So typically, our um, like record temperatures uh, and these, you know, days that may or may not get to 130, they often occur in July. So yes, July is um, our our warmest month. So if you want to um, be in Death Valley during the hottest period of time, you you better hurry up and get out there before. Uh, August, uh, the calendar rolls over to August. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it isn't like August 1, it ticks and the temperature just goes down. uh, Because the the August 16th, 2020, uh, 130 degree day did kind of catch everyone by surprise. So it can happen. 
you know, but, uh, but yes, it's more likely to occur in July. So Nicole, when, when you're greeting visitors in the, the visitor center and I don't know, maybe even the, the entrance stations to the park, do you give the, the visitors tips that they can use to try and stay cool and, and safe during this hot summer season? Yes, we do. Um, you can find these on our website as well so that you can create like your own packing list, but we recommend drinking lots of water. So that's not just bring your water bottle. That's bring four liters per person for the day. Um, eat salty snacks and whenever possible, protect yourself from the sun, stay out of the sun and get your outdoor exercise done before 10 AM and stay with your vehicle. Um, and keep those on the paved roads. It's a lot easier to uh, get to some place with some cooling. Um, if you start to get too warm, if you've got an air conditioned vehicle and you're on paved roads and can get to the visitor center. And do most visitors heed those warnings? I mean, there's always some people who say, well, I know how to take care of myself. I don't need your advice. Thank you very much. We hope that they are, um, but we do respond to uh, visitors in distress usually multiple times a week. So yeah, learn from their mistakes and uh, take take these suggestions seriously. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know in recent years, um, there's been the, the push to get uh, water filling stations in parks um, across the country. Obviously, um, the visitor center at Furnace Creek is, is one place where I believe you have them. But it, it kind of gets difficult elsewhere in the park, no, because there's not a lot of uh, infrastructure aside from the roads. Uh, correct. Yes. So when you come to Death Valley, you do need to come prepared. Bring your water with you. Um, we do, as you mentioned, have water available to the public at the Furnace Creek Visitor Center. Um, there is also uh, either private resorts or other businesses within the park at uh, Panamint um, Springs, at uh, Stovepipe Wells, and then also here at, at Furnace Creek where you can buy additional water where you can refill or get other salty snacks uh, and treats to keep your day cool. That's Nicole Andler. She's the Chief of Interpretation and Education at Death Valley National Park. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, stay cool out there. (laughs) Yes, we will try. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As fascinating as it can be to experience high summer temperatures in a national park setting, be sure to prepare for those conditions with plenty of water, salty snacks, and ample sunscreen and a good hat. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.